I take as my text this Lord's Day, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. It may be thought by many that a small, isolated, reformed church that refuses formal church communion with other churches professing to be reformed demonstrates that it despises biblical unity, is independent and not Presbyterian, and is puffed up with pride. Why will that small Reformed church not put aside its petty differences with the other Reformed churches that are not only larger but even older than itself so as to enjoy formal church communion with them? Aren't there enough divisions within the visible body of Christ already? This objection we hear from professing brethren on a regular basis. And because it is an objection that needs to be answered, I propose to do so, covering three main subjects over the next few weeks. And I will seek to do so in the form of three questions. First, what are terms of communion? The next series of sermons would be Secondly, what is close communion? In the last section of sermons, the third section would be what is occasional communion or what is occasional hearing? As we consider, dear ones, this Lord's Day, the pivotal and vital question, what are terms of communion? I will do so using the following three main points. First of all, the threefold purpose for terms of communion. Second, the biblical testimony for terms of communion. And thirdly, the appeal for terms of communion. Let us then consider our first main point, the threefold purpose for terms of communion. Before we can go very far in our survey of this subject, we must first explain what we mean by the designation terms of communion. Terms of communion within a church may be explained as having a threefold Purpose. The first purpose. 
terms of communion explain to members of a particular church or denomination and to those who would become members the principles upon which members of that church agree and the principles by which that church will be ruled. Terms of communion, dear ones, explain to all the principles that unite these members together in the nearest church communion. Without terms of communion within a particular church, members could believe and propagate whatever they desired in doctrine, worship, government, and discipline with immunity from any church disapproval or censure. In other words, every member would enjoy the same right to pronounce his own view, no matter how heretical or blasphemous it might be, if there were no terms of communion. Dear ones, if there are no terms of communion for members, then it is an absolute free for all within the church. Without terms of communion, which explain the principles and standards by which church members will be governed, discipline and order would be absolutely impossible, or at least totally arbitrary, and changeable moment by moment at the mere whim of the leadership. You remember what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11.40, Let all things be done decently and in order, but there will be no order within a church if there are no terms of communion. It is an absolute circus within a congregation or a church. Dear ones, think about it. No organization or society, whether civil or ecclesiastical, can function with any degree of good order without such principles and standards for its membership. That, then, is the very first purpose for terms of communion. Secondly, terms of communion explain why a particular church is distinct from and separate from other churches. Terms of communion, dear ones, explain why there is a necessity for a particular church to have a separate existence from all the other churches around it. If we assume for the present that it is not God's revealed will that the church of Jesus Christ be divided into thousands of pieces, each having its own doctrine, worship, government and discipline, different from and even contradictory one to the other. And I would simply say, if nothing else, and we'll be elaborating on this point in a few minutes, but if nothing else, the very unity of God should tell us that God does not delight in all of the division that he sees within his body. The unity of God as to his nature. The unity of God as to truth. For God is not double-minded. He speaks one infallible truth. Even that alone should tell us that all of the 
many, many rendings of the body of Christ in hundreds and thousands of pieces is contrary to his revealed will. If that is the case, then we must ask the question, why are there so many different churches? Why are there so many different churches? Well, we might give many reasons as to why there are so many different churches. But I want to approach it from a particular direction at this point. Listen closely. I would offer this answer. Because each of these separate churches implicitly believes, if not explicitly so, that it professes the most faithful expression of biblical Christianity. Each church, in fact, believes that it is more faithful than any other church of which it knows. You ask, is that really what each separate church, in fact, believes? Well, I offer for you this reasoning. A church may not explicitly confess that to be the case, that it believes itself to be the most faithful expression of biblical Christianity. But I offer to you that it implicitly and undeniably states that to be the case by its non-union with and separation from all other churches. For what church with any degree of integrity at all would remain separate from another church it sincerely believes to be more faithful in doctrine, worship, government, and discipline than itself. We have a division, for example, between Baptists and Presbyterians over infant baptism. Baptists are not going to unite with Presbyterians and Presbyterians are not going to unite with Baptists if they understand what's at stake. Each church must consciously, undeniably recognize that its particular view, at least they must in their own thinking believe this. Again, we have a, a, a form of the truth, a standard for the truth when we're talking about these issues, which is the word of God. But as far as the thinking of each of these churches, the Baptists believe they're the most faithful church. Otherwise, they'd unite with the Presbyterians. The Presbyterians believe they are the most faithful church or they would unite with the Baptists if the Baptists were the most faithful church. Thus, I contend that the, the, the continued separation of a church or a denomination from all other churches and denominations implicitly, if not explicitly, declares to the world that it professes itself to be more faithful than any other church of which it knows in doctrine, worship, government, and discipline. <clears throat> this is simply consistent with what we find in Romans chapter 16, verse 17, 
where the Apostle Paul says, Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned, and avoid them. The Apostle says, If they cause divisions contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned, avoid them, withdraw from them, separate from them. And so we recognize that terms of communion explain why a church is separate from all other churches. Why it has its own courts. Why it has its own existence. That's the second purpose for terms of communion. The third purpose for terms of communion is, is this. Terms of communion explain the principles upon which a particular church or denomination will unite with another church or denomination. Thus, terms of communion not only explain why a particular church is separate from other churches, but also terms of communion explain and lay down the principles upon which a church may join formally in church communion with another church. Amos 3.3 asks the question, Can two walk together except they be agreed? And obviously, the rhetorical question demands no, they cannot. Terms of communion lay out the principles for union, communion, the nearest communion with other churches. Therefore, dear ones, terms of communion have both a negative purpose as well as a positive purpose. Negatively, they explain the reason for the separation of one church from all the others. But positively, they explain the basis for the union of one church with another. I want you to understand Dear ones, that terms of communion are not counterproductive to biblical unity. Rather, they are absolutely necessary to biblical unity. Unless, of course, a church were willing to say that it will unite with every other church, regardless of the heresies that are within that church, regardless of the idolatries that are present within that church. That is the third purpose for terms of communion. As you can see, dear ones, from the threefold purpose for terms of communion, every church must have terms of communion either explicitly stated or implicitly practiced. For without them, utter chaos would reign within that particular church. And without them, that particular church would not be separate from any other church on the face of this earth, regardless of how heretical or idolatrous the church might be. They would be in union with every church if there were no terms of communion. And so I would simply offer to you, for brethren to attack any Reformed church that has terms of communion is either purely ignorance, not recognizing that they themselves have terms of communion and they practice them, 
or hypocrisy. Every church has terms of communion. Some churches practice them implicitly. I will be defending next Lord's Day, God willing, that it is to the glory of God and to the edification of the church to have not implicit terms of communion, but explicit terms of communion. The only question then is not whether a church has terms of communion, but rather are a church's terms of communion biblical? Which is the very question we'll seek to answer next Lord's Day. And so I proceed to my second main point. The biblical testimony for terms of communion. And we turn to the text, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. This inspired letter from the Apostle Paul to the church of Corinth, though being the the first letter from the Apostle to the Corinthians, which the Holy Spirit has preserved and placed within the canon of Scripture, is not the first letter that Paul actually wrote and sent to the Corinthians. For we find in 1 Corinthians 5.9 that there was a letter sent to the Corinthians previous to this one. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5.9, I wrote unto you in an epistle not to company with fornicators. A previous epistle. A previous letter. Paul's purpose in writing this letter to the Corinthians, dear ones, is to correct various sins and errors that had crept into the church. As a result of these sins and errors, divisions in doctrine, worship, Divisions in love have manifested themselves within the congregations there. And what is the answer to such divisions and schisms within the church? Let everyone believe their own doctrine, practice their own form of worship, and disregard love and mercy for the brethren. Is that the answer? Is this the answer? Toleration of contradictory doctrines and practices in worship? Is that the answer that Paul gives to the divisions that exist within the church? Diversity of doctrine and worship? Absolutely not. Rather note Paul's inspired exhortation to the Corinthians after he appeals to them in love as fellow brethren and reminds them that this exhortation is not the mere words of a man, but this exhortation comes by the authority of the name of the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. This exhortation of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 1.10 has three parts to it. The first part of this exhortation 
may be summarized this way. Paul first declares there must be one common confession of the truth amongst them. He says that ye, ye all speak the same thing. That, that is, that ye all speak the same thing in regard to the truth. Obviously, he's not saying that they utter exactly the same words in casual and informal conversation. They simply parrot and imitate one another throughout their discourses. He's speaking with regard to the profession and confession of the truth. Here we find, I believe, dear ones, a solid basis for terms of communion or principles of truth that unite Christians together in the body of Christ. And as we read the remainder of the first epistle, first letter to the Corinthians, Paul gives the Corinthians a common confession of truth regarding the gospel, regarding church censures, regarding marriage, regarding separation and divorce, regarding Christian liberty and meat offered to idols, regarding uh, the proper order for men and women in worship, regarding the Lord's Supper, regarding spiritual gifts and regarding the resurrection of the dead. He lays out for them a pattern by which they can commonly confess and exercise terms of communion within their congregation, within the church there. I ask you, how can there be biblical unity exhibited within the church of Jesus Christ apart from a common confession of the faith expressed in terms of communion? There cannot be. God clearly defines the condition upon which two, and if two, Three, and if three, four, five, six, the condition upon which two or more can walk together if they be agreed in the truth. Amos 3, 3, the condition. If they be agreed in the truth. They can walk together in formal and the nearest church communion. Did there exist, dear ones, a common and received body of truth at this time? During the time of the apostles, did there exist that body of truth received and accepted by the churches? Which they believed to be terms of communion whereby Christians might be joined together in communion and unity? Well, consider with me very briefly some New Testament passages which I believe undeniably demonstrate this very fact that in the apostolic church there were terms of communion which brought together believers in the nearest church fellowship and communion. In Acts 2.42 these who were saved as a result of Peter's preaching on the day of Pentecost, it says concerning them, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine 
and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. What is that that is first mentioned in the sequence? They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. The apostles approved, received, and accepted teaching concerning whatever the Lord gave them to address. And from that we find then there is fellowship or communion in the church. That's referring to this, this church communion. It's not referring to the Lord's Supper because in the next phrase we find the breaking of bread, which is the Lord's Supper. This refers to church communion. They continued in the apostles' doctrine and in communion. And then also what follows are other privileges within the church. The Lord's Supper and breaking of bread and in prayers. And notice, it doesn't say they continued occasionally, once in a while in the Apostles' Doctrine, but they continued steadfastly in the Apostles' Doctrine. A second New Testament passage that would indicate, again, and we could cite many, but I've tried to narrow it for the sake of time to just a few. Second Thessalonians 2.15, where the apostles speaks of inspired traditions and ordinances which he had given to them. Second Thessalonians 2.15, therefore, brethren, stand fast. That means Hold to what you have been given. Stand fast in the truth. Don't be moved from it. And he goes on to say to amplify that same truth and hold the traditions which ye have been taught, whether by word or our epistle. Hold the traditions and ordinances which ye have received from us, the apostles, the ministers of Christ did not depart from them. Very clearly, there was a body and system of truth, terms of communion, that those who did not adhere to these doctrines would not be received into apostolic communion and fellowship in the apostolic church. The apostle says in Ephesians chapter 4, where he's pressing the whole issue of Unity and preserving the unity of the Spirit. He says, there is one faith. One faith. Now, he's not talking, I don't believe, about the subjective faith, but I believe he's talking about the objective faith, that which faith believes. That system of truth to which faith clings, that is the faith. That is what I believe he says. There is one faith. There is one system of truth. There is not many. This is the one system of truth, Paul says. This is that which unites Christians together visibly. This one body of truth. And that's the same way that Jude uses the word faith. In Jude, verse 3, when he says, Beloved, when I gave 
all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation. It was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. He doesn't say the faiths, plural. He says the faith as a system and body of truth, an accepted system of truth, preached and believed by those who enjoyed apostolic communion or communion within the apostolic church. See, we have to wrestle with some questions here with regard to terms of communion in the New Testament. We have to ask ourselves, how could the church of Christ have known how to mark false teachers and to withdraw from them if there had been no acknowledged and accepted confession of faith or terms of communion? How would they know who were the false teachers and that they were not to have anything to do with them? They were to withdraw from if there was no confession of faith, if there was no terms of communion. For that is what the apostle says to do in Romans 16, 17. Those who bring about division within the church by introducing teachings which Paul says you have not received from us, withdraw from them. He says in 1 Timothy 6, verses 3 and 5, that they are, Timothy is to promote wholesome, sound teaching. And that those who do not teach that which is sound, and how would you know what was sound unless you had again a system of truth approved? Those who are not sound, he says in verse 5, Avoid them. And I would have you consider, again, with regard to terms of communion, that they were not practiced. This idea of terms of communion was not practiced for the first time in the New Testament church, in the apostolic church. It was, in fact, practiced in the church of the Old Testament as well. When the Lord says in the first commandment, thou shalt have no other gods before me, he implies there is only one God. And thus there is only one confession of truth which comes from God. You cannot have one God confessing contradictory truths or contradictory doctrines. Therefore, the one God is given a system of truth from beginning to end. How many times we find in the Old Testament as well this phrase that there is one law to be among you. One law among those who are Israelites and those who are sojourners as well. One law in approaching God. Not many laws, but one. And there is only to be one form of government for God's people as well. In Ezekiel chapter 43, God reveals to Ezekiel figuratively a temple. 
And in this particular temple, the Lord says to Ezekiel, verse 10, Thou son of man, show the house, that is the house of God, the temple, to the house of Israel, that they may be ashamed of their iniquities and let them measure the pattern of that house or that temple. Verse 11. And if they be ashamed of all that they have done, show them the form of the house and the fashion thereof and the goings out thereof and the comings in thereof and all the forms thereof and all the ordinances thereof and all the forms thereof and all the laws thereof and write it in their sight that they may keep the whole form thereof and all the ordinances thereof and do them. This is the law of the house. And though this is in the Old Testament, this is a prophecy which speaks of the New Testament temple, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. That the Lord has a form for His church, a government by which His church is to be governed. Laws, commandments. Not a duplicity or a multiformity, but a uniformity. And certainly the words of our Savior to His ministers before He ascended into heaven strongly imply there is a common confession of the faith to be taught by the ministers to those who profess to be Christians when the Lord says in Matthew chapter 28 verses 19 and 20 go ye therefore and teach all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. The Lord expressly says, teach them all things I have commanded you. There is a form of sound words. There is a system of truth. These are, dear ones, our terms of communion. Whatever Christ has commanded, these are our terms of communion. Listen to the words of Calvin from his Institutes. As he summarizes the biblical terms of communion for the Church of Christ, listen to what he says. Those who by making dissension break the communion of the church are called heretics and schismatics. Now, this communion is held together. That is, church communion is held together by two bonds. Agreement in sound doctrine and brotherly love. The two bonds that unite us together. Agreement in sound doctrine and brotherly love. Calvin continues, but it must be noted that this conjunction of love so depends upon unity of faith, that is, unity of the faith, the system of truth, the sound doctrine, 
that it, that is sound doctrine, ought to be it, that is love's beginning, end, and in fine, its sole rule. What is love's rule? Sound doctrine. Love cannot be manifested, dear ones, properly without sound teaching and doctrine. One does not know how to love apart from the truth. Truth, therefore, dear ones, though we would never say that truth is more important than love, truth is more foundational than love. Love is built upon truth. Secondly, in our text, the second exhortation that we find is this, that Paul declares, and I summarize, Paul declares there should be no divisions amongst them. For the apostle says, and that there be no divisions among you, whether in doctrine, worship, government, discipline, or in brotherly love, no divisions among you. For as I said earlier, Paul addresses many various subjects in this epistle, in this letter, as he sets before them terms of communion where there, whereby they might enjoy biblical communion and peace one with the other. Literally, Paul says that there be no schisms among you. Now, a schism is a rending or tearing within the visible body of Christ, which occurs when error, contrary to sound doctrine, contrary to pure worship, contrary to orderly worship or government, contrary to faithful discipline, is tolerated and propounded within the church. And when as a result of that toleration of these errors and practices, contentions and jealousies, contrary to brotherly love, set unfaithful brethren against faithful brethren. Therein you have schism within the body of Christ. It should be noted, therefore, that a schism is not necessarily associated with a minority we tend to think that it is the minority, the few, that are guilty of schism. But I would propose to you and submit to you that likewise, certainly it's possible that the minority can be guilty of schism. But I would propose to you that as well the majority can be guilty of schism. It can be the majority who in fact have defected from the truth. And it is the minority that would seek to be faithful and who are not the cause of the schism when they simply want to adhere to the truth. Technically then, dear ones, schism or rending within the body of Christ occurs due to unfaithfulness in truth and love. And that it precedes, schism technically precedes a formal separation due to obstinacy and notable departures from the truth. 
Dear ones, here is the apostolic answer to all churches, to all ministers and members who promote the view that diversity in doctrine, worship, government, and discipline is actually healthy for the church. No, no, no a thousand times. Diversity in gifts of the Spirit is healthy for the church. As Paul makes clear in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. But diversity in the truth is destructive to the church. For the church of Jesus Christ, dear ones, is the pillar and ground of the truth. According to 1 Timothy 3.15. And that is why the Apostle Paul states here unequivocally, that there be no divisions among you. Dear ones, in order to obey this apostolic injunction, terms of communion are absolutely necessary. They are implied in this injunction that there be no divisions among you. Thirdly, from our text. The third part of this exhortation, Paul declares that those in the church of Christ, and I summarize again, should be visibly united together. He says, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. That ye be perfectly joined together as closely as you possibly can. That you enjoy the nearest Uniformity, that you enjoy the nearest communion and fellowship, not simply of affection, not only of affection and love, but in doctrine, worship, government, and discipline. Therefore, contrary to diversity in the truth, the Church of Christ, according to the Apostle Paul, is to maintain a visible unity in the truth. And I would have you simply note to what lengths the people of God in the Old Testament were willing to go in order to maintain this visible unity under Joshua. And if that was the case before Christ came, and I will demonstrate what occurred in the Old Testament in a moment, but if that was the case under the Old Covenant before Christ came, how much more we should strive for unity in the truth since Christ has come. You remember in Joshua chapter 22, the tribes there had accomplished the clearing and defeating, the clearing of those enemies, of those various tribes, nations within the land, not completely spoiling them, but to a large extent spoiling them. And in Joshua chapter 22, the work for the time being is done. And the tribes of the Reubenites, the Gadites, and half the tribe of Manasseh had taken up land on the other side of the Jordan, whereas the other nine and a half tribes had taken up land and had been allotted land on the, on the uh, west side of the Jordan. 
So there are two and a half tribes on the east side of Jordan. Now the two and a half tribes return to their homes. And they're exhorted by Joshua to be faithful to the Lord, to walk in accordance with his commandments. But as they cross the, the Jordan, it says in Joshua 22.10, And when they came unto the borders of Jordan that are in the land of Canaan, the children of Reuben and the children of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh built there an altar by Jordan, a great altar to see to. They built an altar. And you may say, well, that's very interesting, but what's the significance of that? Well, it caused quite a stir amongst the nine and a half tribes to the point that they rallied the troops together and came. They brought their, their peaceful coalition, their emissaries first, to find out as much information as they could before they began to, to use force. They asked them, why have you built this particular altar? Inasmuch as the Lord has commanded not to build any altar except the one that is in the holy place, where God himself will appoint that you should worship him. One altar, one form of worship, one doctrine, one government, one discipline, not many. Because the minute that you begin to divide up and allow many altars, as we find to be the case when Israel, the northern kingdom, separated from Judah, different religions begin to form. And so these nine and a half tribes inquired and the two and a half tribes said, we did not build this altar in order to offer anything upon it by way of sacrifice. It is simply a memorial, a witness to remind us that we belong to the other nine and a half tribes, that we are one people with them, that we are not a divided people, that we are to worship the same God in the same way. And with that, the nine and a half tribes were satisfied that it was not a violation of God's word and God's commandments. And they separated in peace. But you see how jealously they, they coveted that union, that physical and visible union between the twelve tribes. That is, dear ones, a picture of what should be evident in the church of Jesus Christ. That kind of union in the truth and communion in the truth. My third and last point. Having considered the biblical testimony for terms of communion is an appeal. An appeal to you four terms of communion. And I appeal to you, dear ones, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to consider Christ's own words in regard to terms of communion. Consider, dear ones, the high priestly prayer of our Savior in John chapter 17. 
when he prayed for the unity, the oneness of his church. John 17, verse 11. And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to thee, Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. And then verses 21 through 23, Jesus continues, that they all may be one as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. And the glory which thou gavest me, I have given them that they may be one, even as we are one. I and them and thou and me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. Here the Lord prays, dear ones, not only for the apostles, but also for those who would believe through their testimony and word. What is his prayer? That they might be one. That his people, that his church might be one. And he's not speaking of their oneness as the church triumphant because naturally we recognize when we're in the presence of Christ we'll have all of our theology figured out we'll be in total agreement there but this oneness of which he speaks will bring about the world believing in Christ this is a visible unity that he prays for This is a visible unity here upon the earth that the Lord Jesus Christ prays for. Is this unity, dear ones, for which the Lord prays not only a a heavenly uh, unity, but some may argue that it's only a spiritual unity that he has in view. Because all believers are united to the head Jesus Christ spiritually, mystically, Is that the unity that he specifically has in mind? Certainly that's true. All Christians are united to Christ. All share in that communion in Jesus Christ. But is that the emphasis of what Christ speaks here? I offer to you again, that is not specifically that which he speaks of. The visible body of Christ if that were the case, could be torn asunder into hundreds and thousands of pieces as it is now. And the body of Christ could believe contrary doctrines and practice contrary forms of worship. But one might argue, but as long as they are one in the spirit, all of the visible disunity is just fine. That's not the unity of which Christ for which Christ prays. I dare say, dear ones, that the spiritual communion and unity that all believers have in Christ is to be manifested in a visible communion and unity in the truth and in brotherly love. And what, why do I say this? Why do I say that it's to be manifested visibly in one doctrine, worship, government, and discipline? 
Because, dear ones, the oneness within the church has a pattern. The oneness in the church is to be patterned after the oneness in the Godhead. For the Lord says in John 17, 11, that they may be one as we are. He says in John 17, 22, that they may be one even as we are one. And I ask you, therefore, dear ones, are there contrary systems of truth maintained by the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? Do the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit believe contradictory things about the truth? Are there different ways in which the Father would have us worship Him as distinct from the Son and the Holy Spirit? Since God is one, He is one in the truth. Dear ones, this is the oneness which we are commanded to strive for here upon the earth. The unity spoken of by Christ is characterized in this chapter by being sanctified in the truth. In John 17, verse 17, sanctify them in the truth for thy word is truth. And in verse 19, as well, and for their sakes I sanctify myself that they also might be sanctified through the truth. The truth, dear ones, is to be manifested visibly through terms of communion and confessions of faith. And the Lord not only gives us the pattern for unity, being the Godhead, but the Lord Jesus also gives the purpose for biblical unity. The purpose toward which biblical unity points. That the world may believe that thou hast sent me. In John seventeen twenty one. To what does the Lord refer most likely, he refers here to the propagation of the gospel and bringing the world to himself, certainly as it was exhibited in the times of the apostles and thereafter, but ultimately, I believe the Lord points to the ingathering of Israel to himself and the ingathering of the fullness of the Gentiles, that the world may believe. Thou hast sent me. During the millennial reign of the Lord Jesus Christ in power and glory from His throne in heaven, the name of the Lord will be one in all of the earth. The knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. All nations and kings of the earth will come to the visible church and worship the Lord Jesus Christ. During that blessed and anticipated time, Christ will not reign over a church that is in absolute chaos as it is today, that is rent into thousands of pieces, but rather He will reign over a church that is in peace, communion, unity, and prosperity 
For these will reign in that time in the visible church. A covenanted uniformity throughout the world will be exhibited as our forefathers exhibited in Scotland, England, and Ireland and sought to maintain through the Solemn League and Covenant. Not only those three nations covenanting together, but that covenant was intended to bring all nations and all churches under the umbrella of a covenanted reformation. And that, dear ones, is what we look forward to in the millennial reign and which Jesus himself prophesies, I believe, that will occur. Such a blessed and gathering of which the Lord here speaks when he says that the world may believe that thou hast sent me will be promoted not by disunity in the truth, but by a visible unity and uniformity in doctrine, worship, government, discipline, and in brotherly love. And I conclude, dear ones, by asking, why is the hand of the Lord so heavy upon his visible church today? Because his people have rent his body by their false doctrine, their unauthorized worship, their tyrannical government. They're lenient to one extreme or harsh to the other extreme discipline. And thus they have cast aside their love for the brethren. If ever the church needed biblical terms of communion, it is now. If ever the church would be effective in drawing the world unto Christ, it must not skip over biblical terms of communion and advance very quickly to methods of evangelism. For Jesus says that the world will not be brought to him unless they see that you are one, even as we are one. We have here, dear ones, a certain method of bringing the world to believe in the one true Christ which we proclaim to show forth the love and communion of Christ by exhibiting that love and communion in biblical terms of communion. The world, dear ones, will not respond to a divided Christ but will flock to a united Christ. Here then is the supreme reason why the church of Jesus Christ needs unified and biblical terms of communion. Please stand with me in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, We praise Thee for the work of Thy Spirit through Thy Word. We thank Thee, our Father, that Thou dost illuminate our understanding so that we see, appreciate, love, receive, and believe the truth that is in Thy Word. And, O God, Thou hast given to us more than ample testimony this day for terms of communion within thy church. From Old Testament 
to New Testament, from the time of the law to the time of the prophets, to the time of Christ, to the time of the apostles and yea, even into our time. O Lord, our God, thy church is to have terms of communion. But we are to have biblical terms of communion. And we are to search thy word and we are, Father, to advance thy truth and thy doctrine and worship. O Father, we pray that thou would give us thy wisdom that we would not depart from the doctrine which has been given to us by our faithful forefathers. That we would not depart from the doctrine which is found in thy word. We pray, Lord, that we would not depart from the good old path. That we would seek the old paths. That we would walk therein. That we would hold fast to that, Father, which thou hast given to us. O Lord, we praise Thee this day that Thou hast shown us so clearly the importance, the significance that the church universally throughout the world have common terms of communion. For it is then, O Lord, it is then that the world will come to believe that thou didst send thy son, and that thou hast loved thy people. We pray, our Father, that thou would impress these truths upon our mind. In Jesus' name, amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com by phone at 780-450-3730 by fax at 780-468-1096 or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. 
And if this principle is adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.